Well, welcome again to another episode of Science and Society, everything you want to know about COVID-19. And it's with, with great pleasure I have uh, Dr. Laura Waters here with me today. Uh, she's a consultant physician in HIV in London and also the president of the British HIV Association. She's published widely on, on HIV, of course, but also on COVID and has been a couple of reviews in the Lancet HIV from her about COVID and HIV. Now, Laura, um, you've got together with EAX and Gesida, the Polish Society, DAIG, uh, all on a, a statement on guidelines, really, for uh, the risk of COVID in HIV. Where did all that come from? What, 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 and what did you decide? Um, so thank you, Anton. Yes, I think that statement um, with all those different groups firstly was a theme post or, or at the beginning of the pandemic in that different people were working together to address the questions that clinicians and, and patients had. So I think the first thing is, is to thank all those societies and, and really acknowledge how important collaboration is when we're dealing with any new issue and getting clear communication out, which includes saying when we don't know is really important. So it was a need for information for clinicians and for people living with HIV that drove the statement. And I think it's because it was very difficult to keep up with the data. At the beginning, we just didn't know. So the very first iteration of that guidance was based on best guess, really, based on what we know about the impact of HIV on other illnesses and comorbidities based on what we understand about the impact of CD4 and viral suppression. And as the data emerged, that guidance evolved to summarize the data, but also to address some of the myths that were emerging and trying to present everything in as pragmatic and helpful a way as possible. Okay, so, um, but they've evolved over time as the evidence has come out. And, 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 you know, there's been several studies reporting a higher risk of poor outcomes in HIV with COVID-19. In, in, in uh, and I just wondered that we've got a lot of people in Europe who are male with HIV, who are older than 50 years, and, and it's known that HIV patients have got more comorbidities. So do you think that this guidance should really be just about Hey, if you're in this, if, if you're in the usual risk factors, uh, then be careful about COVID-19 rather than having something that's very specific about patients with HIV. I think that's a really good point. And the trouble is, is that the cohorts are conflicting. Now, the very early studies, which were generally small and generally not necessarily adjusted for all the things they should have been, didn't show any impact of HIV on mortality. And it's only when bigger cohorts were able to adjust for factors, particularly age, because if you don't adjust for age, some of the big cohorts have shown it's quite easy to miss this association. So the fact is people with HIV on average in these cohorts were younger than people without, and that was masking some of the impact of HIV on outcomes. Now, comorbidities, it varies. So uh, one actually that you and I wrote, uh, Lancet, um, HIV editorial on the open safely cohort in the UK 
actually what we pointed out in our editorial is that for people without comorbidities, there didn't appear to be an elevated risk, which is really good news. However, that's not been shown in all of the cohort. So if you look at some of the other UK analyses based on ISERIC, the database about hospitalised cases, there's some Public Health England analyses. And even after adjusting for comorbidities as far as we can, there does still appear to be an excess risk. So I think it's tricky. I think undoubtedly some of it's being driven by comorbidities, maybe all of it, and we're just not collecting comorbidity data well enough. But I think there is enough data there to suggest that HIV or other factors disproportionately impacting people with HIV do drive excess mortality. And, and by that, I mean things like occupation and housing and all of those determinants of poor health that disproportionately affect people with HIV. The, the, yeah, well, I, I understand that, that, that and I think it's a, it's a really important point. But trying to untangle um, how much HIV itself is... Um, responsible for poor outcomes compared with everything else, which I'd like to do during the next few minutes. So firstly, let's just look at those social things. Um, people with HIV, some of them will seek out access to health care. They'll also seek out getting tested a lot. Yep. Where, uh, so I, I can just think of some of the MSMs in my clinic who are really fantastic about their health uh, and would do that. But there are others such as migrants with HIV who have got, you know, not so much into the healthcare system. Uh, they may live in multi-generational homes and therefore be, be much more at risk of developing COVID uh, because of their poverty and that. So, I mean, we, we do we have much data at all on, on these other factors outside of comorbidities that might be affecting our HIV population? I mean, I, I think we do from some general studies. So there's uh, work looking at the impact of occupation. So, for example, we know that healthcare workers are at higher risk. Uh, we know that many frontline workers, uh, transport workers and people who had to be out and about putting themselves at risk, especially during the first lockdown, um, have some really quite terrible outcomes. I mean, tra transport was a, a really sad story in London. That many of these workers were at a much higher risk of COVID mortality. And the, the idea that the, the exposure to COVID, the sort of inoculum, the frequency of exposure is associated with worse outcomes, I think is one of the things that drives that. And it's difficult because I think some people with HIV, you're absolutely right, are very healthcare literate. They're good at navigating the systems and they may well have been more likely to test. There'll be other people who found it difficult to access services who may have been less likely to test. And I guess that's where the studies that look at outcomes from the point of hospitalisation that are adjusted for severity of presentation, where the outcomes are still worse. I think that tells us it's not necessarily about testing behavior and it is a genuine effect whether again as you've mentioned it's driven by HIV per se really hasn't been disentangled and I think because we're dealing with such disparate data that is often and no criticism but the bigger a cohort by definition I think the less granular the data can be I don't think we'll ever tease it out completely so there is always going to be an element of art to interpreting the science of the data that we have. 
Yeah, no, I must agree. I, I, the, the, the data appears from some of the studies, especially it started with the South African study, that uh, HIV, uh, people with HIV who are immunosuppressed or got active viremia perhaps, could have worse outcomes in terms of their progression and going into hospital and death. And I mean, and they tries to say that if they took away all the comorbidities, the TB and all the hypertension and diabetes, they said that about 10% was related to HIV itself. And I just wondered what that, that maybe that was the percentage of the patients who were immune suppressed. What, what's, what goes through your mind about all the data that's come out about this immunosuppression and HIV and risk? Um, do you think it, it holds water? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what do we, we, we start with the biological plausibility. And I think what we know about other acute infections, other respiratory illnesses, that it's reasonable to assume that somebody with a low CD4 count or who isn't virally suppressed will be at a higher risk of poor outcomes. So I think we've got some plausibility there. Where the data has been reported, of course, what makes it difficult is so many of these cohorts are looking at people who are virally suppressed and have reasonable CD4 counts. So our sample sizes who fit the immune suppressed and detectable viral load criteria are always quite small. And as we know, the accuracy of any um, estimate or conclusion with a small sample size you know, is, is not great. I think where studies have looked at it, there's been a consistent enough theme that low CD4 or detectable viral load or both are associated with worse outcomes. And with the South Africa data, I think tuberculosis, of course, is going to have a bigger impact. And maybe to a degree that's masking some of the impact of, of HIV itself. Though, again, this was a treated cohort of people, wasn't it, with, with fairly decent CD4 counts? Yeah, although they didn't, they, they didn't have much in the way of uh, recent CD4 no, or viral load at that time. Absolutely, no, yeah. and, that, and that's, that's, that's the, the difficulty. And, and even in, in the UK cohorts, I mean, CD4 counts aren't checked very frequently. CD4 counts weren't necessarily being monitored at all during COVID. And I think there was a lot of incomplete and missing data in all of these cohorts. But there, I guess it's about being sensible and and i always take the approach that where uh, where the impact is uncertain it's safer to err on the side of caution and it's about balancing what we know with what we don't know i guess yeah and one of the things that i wanted to ask you is do you think there's a cd4 count below which it's you know much more risky because We've had this two this magic mark of two hundred CD four is a, is a sort of surrogate marker above which you're not going to get uh, much in the way of opportunistic infection, especially if you've got viral suppression. But uh, I I don't know. People still use that as a cutoff to do any analyses. Uh, do you think it's relevant with COVID or or is it just unknown? Uh, yeah, I think so. Where an effect's been shown in some studies, it's below three fifty rather than two hundred. But again, I think from the evidence I've reviewed, I, I think below 200 would be the, the highest risk, below 350, probably some increase in risk. I think what's difficult to pull out 
is what are the drivers of people having a low CD4 count? What are the drivers of not being undetectable on treatment? And then that could confound the findings, of course, because if there are other poorly measured or unmeasured factors associated with having a low CD4 or a detectable viral load, that could be skewing the results. But I guess in some ways, it's not entirely relevant, is it? Because if we can say that the data in general supports worse outcomes for people, the CD4 count below 200, whether that's being driven by that actual CD4 count or other disproportionately represented risk factors, it's kind of irrelevant. You still want to do a bit more and be more cautious and boost vaccines in that group because they're at higher risk. The reason practically for a patient doesn't matter so much. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, I, and we may never get that <laughs> missing link if if it does exist. So, so some of the patients have felt very sort of protected by the fact they were on tenofovir DF, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, because the, the Spanish at first said it might be protective. Do you think it protects against COVID? Oh goodness, yeah, it's it, it's one of those one of those issues that you know, there are some fascinating Twitter trails on this particular topic because um, Twitter does tend to attract people with views at one end of the spectrum or the other, and you rapidly end up with quite a polarized debate. So I personally. I don't think we can say for certain. I think it's being driven by confounders primarily. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, we do not use tenofovir DF. So we only see this alleged protection where it's observed on tenofovir DF, not on tenofovir alafenamide, which doesn't really make sense because they both yield the same active drug. So surely they should both be protective if there's really an impact although we could argue about what concentration you reach in cells and compartments, et cetera. The other thing is that contrary to what people quote about some ferret study that I don't think was ever published, there's no in vitro evidence of activity of tenofovir against SARS-CoV-2. There's a lot of computational modeling or docking studies, which are not the same as in vitro. And actually those kind of computational models in general, aren't very predictive of activity. They're a kind of first clue. They sort of narrow down the candidates. But more often than not, they're not associated with meaningful in vitro or clinical efficacy. So you've got no in vitro activity. You've got a population. So we avoid tenofovir DF in people with kidney comorbidities, for example. So you're generally looking at a healthier population on tenofovir DF. And I think that's probably what's driving most of this, that it's to do. Now, I know in Spain they've adjusted for various things that, that they conclude tenofovir is still protective. I just, I just don't entirely buy it, and it's not been shown in other cohorts. If there's an effect, I don't think it's antiviral. We know that tenofovir DF has this kind of relatively unique effect on immune activation. So I think if there's an impact, it's, it's being driven more by a non-specific effect on immune activation, uh, de definitely not an antiviral effect. But ultimately, again, bringing this back to what does it mean for patients? Are we gonna be switching people in order to mitigate a COVID risk? Well, of, of course we're not. The, the data is inconsistent, probably driven by confounders. And I don't think it has any meaningful impact on clinical practice. 
Uh, thanks, Laura. I agree with you. And, and you know, people at initial, in the initial start of the epidemic wanted to have, go back to lipinavir because there was some data on lipinavir <laughs> being protective. And we sort of I thought well, the, the risk benefit for that was was negative. So I know. Uh, and so, undoubtedly, so, yeah, if, we'll and have, have hit, if and when we're hit with another uh, novel infectious agent, undoubtedly uh, the same drugs are going to be studied. <laughs> Um, over and over again and it, it's it's tricky and I, I do remember a, almost hysteria at the beginning and that you know there, there were clinics or, or intensive care units putting lapinavir in their protocols in the very very early days and and that sense that you know, if you've got someone really sick you're going to chuck everything you can and that's understandable of course but really the, the the bigger the emergency the more we need to be cautious and that's where the recovery trial is such a great example that actually applying the principles of good research to an urgent unanswered question yields decent answers and that's of course where we got the data about dex dexamethasone, a cheap old drug that has a massive impact on mortality. And I, I think we do people a disservice if we don't apply high quality research to address these questions from the start. No, I agree. And, we, and I'm glad that people are concentrating a little bit now on our immunosuppressed patients. So a couple of things that are linked about immune responses. Um, yes. if, if somebody with now, 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 let's just try and discount. And I'm sorry to do that a bit. The people who are, are really immune suppressed, who, who then get natural COVID. Imagine you're a, 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 I just wanted to talk firstly about the, the well person with HIV, with yeah. a CD4 count 350 or above 200 and suppressed. What's their immune response? And and, do you, and then maybe you could, if there's any data that you can share with us about people who don't have good uh, immunity. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the groups have looked at, at two immune endpoints or, or, or two groups. So they're, they're the people where you're monitoring their response to natural infection. And then there's the people where you're monitoring their response to vaccination. Now, of course, the challenge is, the, undertaking those studies at the beginning, great. But trying to do those studies, the further along we get, because we're going to reach a stage where everybody's going to have a degree of natural and vaccinated immunity. So it gets very difficult to sort of disentangle because we know, for example, that, that prior infection with SARS-CoV-2 enhances response to some vaccines. So it, it gets hard to disentangle. But where, where the question has been looked at, and again, as we discussed earlier, most of these studies are in people with high CD4 counts uh, and, and viral suppression. The immune responses, so both the humoral and cellular immune responses to natural infection, seem to be pretty similar in people with HIV as people without. There is some correlation. So the CD4, CD8 ratio, for example, does appear to be correlated with the magnitude of some of these responses, which people then extrapolate to mean that you know, people with low CD4 counts and detectable viral loads, even if they've not been very well studied uh, in, in these protocols, may be at higher risk of non-response. Uh, similar kind of findings with the vaccine, again, thwarted by the fact that most of the vaccine studies recruited very small numbers of people with HIV and people who were virally suppressed with good CD4 counts. 
where there's been some data looking at vaccine responses in real life cohorts, it appears particularly after the first dose of vaccination, people may not be producing as strong immune responses, but by dose two, that impact has disappeared. And again, whether that's got any clinical importance, I really don't think that's been proven. And, and with all of this, measuring these immune responses, I still don't think we fully understand what the most important correlate is. So it's difficult to draw conclusions about the slightly lower responses in some people to natural infection and to vaccination. Now, Laura, I mean, people are talking about giving three doses to immunosuppressed. Should we do that for all the HIV patients or just those with low CD4 counts? A very good question. And I think based on what we know already about natural and vaccine induced immune responses, we can only really say it's necessary for people with with lower CD4 counts at the moment. So the third dose, first thing to clarify, is different to a booster. Everyone needs a booster after their first two doses, but the third dose is for people with immune suppressive conditions or treatments who are more likely to have not responded to the first two. So this is about sort of improving your initial vaccine course response. And those people are almost certainly still gonna be offered a booster six months down the line. So for people with HIV, the guidance is that a CD4 count below 200 should prompt a third dose. The British HIV Association expanded that slightly because the JCVI who write this guidance were very clear we should have the scope to individualise this advice. So we've broadened it a bit to include people with a recent HIV related illness that may be a marker of immune suppression and also people with persistent or recurrent detectable viral loads. So we've kind of broadened the criteria to give clinicians and people with HIV the the scope to make a decision about whether a third dose is needed. Okay, so that means that if if you've got HIV with a good CD4 count and suppressed viral load, you get two doses like like the most of the world have had, and then six months later you get a booster. If Correct. you fall into those categories that you've said below below 200 plus all those other things, then you get three doses as your course, and then a booster probably six months later. Is that correct? Spot on. Just to get that right. Yeah, Thank you no, perfect. Yeah, and it would be nice to be able to monitor who's made an immune response because now we've got some small molecules. Uh, there's the Pfizer drug. Malnupiravir, and also we've got um, monoclonal antibodies because if you don't respond to vaccination, you've got another option there to to uh, have therapy. I yeah. know the small molecules we haven't seen in prep yet, in in pre-exposure, but uh, the immun- the uh, monoclonals we have so. Uh, there are some options, aren't there, for No, absolutely. For but of, of course, because monoclonals for treatment are, are you know, being restricted to hospitalised people with certain severity criteria, you know, it, it's now routine to, to test um, you know, for immunity at admission and using that as a, a triage for who gets the drugs. So you know, if we, imagine if we could apply that to, to vaccination, I think the difficulty is we'll probably never reach the cost effectiveness or the, the 
practical practicality feasibility uh, threshold to, to be able to do these tests in absolutely everybody who's due a booster. Thankfully, the number of people being hospitalised now is quite small, so you can apply these very sort of specific tests. I think it's unlikely we're going to see that rolled out for routine vaccine decisions. No, but we might target them for people who are immune suppressed, low CD4s, or have got cancer, or got cancer on chemotherapy, etc., etc. So I'm hopeful that we might be able to move in that direction at some time no, in the future. Absolutely. Well, we have to move on. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, to talk to you. And I know how much work and effort that you've put in uh, on behalf of the British HIV Association and, and the other societies have too in maintaining all of the services uh, during this uh, COVID pandemic, which seems to be coming back now in Europe. Uh, and um, I wish you all the best for the future. And I'm looking forward to any updates of the guidance as the data comes in. So thank you, Laura Ward. Consultant Physician from London and President of the British HIV Association for talking to me today about HIV and COVID-19. And this is Anton Posniak from London wishing you a very good day. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcast. You can learn more about virology education and our other programmes at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.